Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Jews, bought his wife a pair of shoes. When the shoes began to wear, Nebuchadnezzar began to swear. When the shoes got worse and worse, Nebuchadnezzar began to curse. It doesn't get any better. Um, (laughs) That's a children's skipping rhyme from the 1960s in England, part of my heritage, and based very loosely on the mad scene in our passage today. Uh, I guess self-delusion has been around for a long time. Uh, Whether it's Vladimir Putin trying to regain the glory days of the Soviet Union, despite his country having a GDP ranked only 11th in the world. This is fascinating. Look right at the bottom. 11th in the world and yet going to war. Only just slightly bigger than Australia. Or Donald Trump, still banging on about his greatness and that the last presidential election was stolen. Or any number of pastors of churches thinking that they are above God's rules for humility, care for the weak and sexual purity, and that they actually need and deserve a a bigger private jet. Sadly, I'm not making that up. There's delusion everywhere. We are so used to the delusion in our leaders that we may look at Nebuchadnezzar and think, well, we've got the same problems today. And why couldn't he interpret his own dream? It seems pretty simple. Nebuchadnezzar had a mighty empire. He had a dream in which he and his empire appear as a mighty tree that that provided shelter for all his people. But a voice from heaven called out for all this to be taken away except for the stump and the roots. Nebuchadnezzar had a whole year in which to inquire if there was anything he could do to avoid the catastrophe. We're not told how long the periods are. Perhaps they would have been very short if he'd worked out that all he needed to do was to turn to God and repent, and the terrible prophecy wouldn't actually last for that long. But no. The iron-bound stump is a reminder that he will get the empire back if he admits that there is one God above all others who rules. That is, uh, and it's a contest between the king of heaven and the king of Babylon. And in that contest, the king of heaven wins. But in vanity and self-delusion, Nebuchadnezzar did what so many human rulers do. He failed to repent and acknowledge God. He lost his empire and his sanity. And it's a, a story that we can recognise. But I don't want this sermon to be a morality play. I don't want to pick on soft targets of people today who are deluded about their own powers or self-worth, although those words about acting rightly and relying upon the power of God must apply to any ruler in the world today and so wonderfully brought to us um, in... Zoe's prayer. And I also don't want to turn this back on ourselves and think about how we like to overlook our own weaknesses and ignore God in our lives. Uh, There will be a bit of that, 
But I want to look at how this chapter contributes to the initial purpose of this book and how it is relevant to us today as we await the return of our King and Saviour, Jesus Christ. If you've been with us over the last three weeks, you will have heard the first three chapters of Daniel and sermons on each one of them. You may have noticed that there is no storyline. We've had three apparently unrelated scenes. The first week, we saw Daniel and his three friends resisting Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to turn them away from their God and become good Babylonian servants. In the second week, we saw God help Daniel interpret a dream and prove the superiority of God. And in the third week, we saw God save Daniel's three friends from the furnace and Nebuchadnezzar acknowledge the power of Daniel's God. Now we have a story that starts in peace and tranquility, then has a worrying dream scene, the temporary madness of King Nebuchadnezzar, and it ends with the king back in his right mind, restored to his throne and praising God. Uh, We will have two more scenes, and then a few chapters of Daniel's dreams and visions, which are way weirder than Nebuchadnezzar's. And we'll end with the clearest picture in the Old Testament of the resurrection of the dead and eternal life for those who follow the ways of God. So that's where we're going. How does this chapter help us get there? There are at least three ways to interpret our chapter today. You can read it as history. That says these events actually happened. Or you can read it as a morality play. Avoid self-deception and whether you are a mighty king like Nebuchadnezzar or a humble foot soldier like us, know that we can only take our true place in the world through repentance and faith. And that is true. It works. Or we can read it as satire. A big send-up. A monumental send-up of the Greek overlords who ruled and abused the Jews in Israel in the second century BC when Daniel was written. The intention of this send-up is to encourage perseverance and faithfulness under God so that the blessings of survival and resurrection to something unimaginably, unimaginably better would flow to those who do persevere in faith. In preparing for this, I heard a really good sermon on this chapter as history. The preacher spoke on the basis that this is a story about Nebuchadnezzar, a 6th century Babylonian king. He gave details about the might and wealth and vanity of Nebuchadnezzar. He said Nebuchadnezzar made Babylon the New York or Shanghai of his day. The biggest city then seen anywhere. He caused to be made by hand 15 million bricks. Now, that's impressive enough. But every one of them carried an inscribed message about the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, that's astonishing vanity, isn't it? And he had palaces and gardens and temples of outstanding opulence. And with those details, you can understand why Nebuchadnezzar was happy in his home, contented and prosperous. But Nebuchadnezzar feared he may lose his power and wealth, as most rich and powerful people do. Just think of 
Hitler and, and, and Stalin, who were both neurotically scared of losing all their power. And he channeled that into a dream. Nebuchadnezzar channeled the, those fears into a dream and that Daniel was able to interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar was given a whole year to reflect on Daniel's warning. He did not take advantage of that time and repent and truly turn to God to see if God could help him avoid the disaster that lay ahead. But we may suspect that God was behind this. It's clear that the voice in the dream comes down uh, and it comes down from heaven with this warning. And if the warning doesn't uh, isn't taken, then these things will happen to Nebuchadnezzar at the hand of God. Nebuchadnezzar spends seven periods in madness, living as an animal and taking on some of the physical appearances of an animal. It's unclear how long those periods are, but it takes time to grow claws and feathers. Some say seven years, some say seven seasons, but either way, it was a longish time. Oops, that's not where I want to go. We'll go on to this one. There we go. Um, we're told he was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, that might seem odd to us. But the mental condition of Porphyria is known to modern science. King George III of England suffered from it for 10 years and apparently was known to eat grass. I agree with the preacher conclusion that self-deception is capable of bringing down even the mightiest. We are better off when we see all that we have as gift from God and look to follow him rather than our own vain plans. So looking at this as history works. But the records of Nebuchadnezzar's reign are extensive. We know a lot about Babylon, his victories over the Assyrians, his successful capture of Jerusalem and his 43 years reign. We knew, know how he administered the place, who did what, what battles he fought, um, what, what, when he was away fighting battles and when he was back. We know all these things, but there is no record of his madness and no record of a prolonged absence from his kingly duties and no record of his appreciation of the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar kept the Jews in exile in Babylon throughout his long reign. And it fell to the Persian king Cyrus to let the Jews go some many years later. Now, this does not prove that Nebuchadnezzar did not go mad or proclaim God. And archaeologists are always finding things that fit in with the biblical accounts. But being reduced to eating grass sounds a bit too much like ridicule. And growing feathers and claws sounds a bit extreme as does undermining the whole religious system of his empire. So this may be history, but I doubt it. I'm not sure that the people who first heard the book of Daniel in the 2nd century BC 
Israel knew much more about Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar than most of us do. In fact, we probably know more than they did. I would have sounded, it would have sounded very weird to them in 2nd century BC Jerusalem. It, like last week, the repetition that we saw it has a humorous tone. And I suggest that was the author's plan. The first hearers of this book were not supposed to read this as history. So I'm going to keep going with the view that this was written initially for people who were suffering terrible oppression in their own land of Israel from brutal Greek overlords 300 years after these events described in Daniel are said to have happened. Just think, if they understood this to be not a story really about a king who lived a long way away, who had an empire collapse 300 years ago, but as a thinly disguised send-up of the Jews' Greek overlords. The Greeks are proud of their wealth and learning and military achievements, but we Jews know that all of them are temporary things. And what's more, we know anything good comes from our God. And we know rulers can sometimes feel safe in their palaces and contented and prosperous, as we read in verse 4. But no one beats our God, the King of heaven. We Jews know that true safety and contentment is only found with our God. And we know, as our scriptures tell us, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom which is why the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners of Babylon couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He needed Daniel, who had already been gifted by God with wisdom and the ability to interpret dreams. And we know that his wisdom comes from the fear of or reverence for God. And while the Greek overlords of Israel in the second century BC may not have exactly had the same dream as Nebuchadnezzar is described as having, they had the same pretensions and the same delusions and the same fears that it may be all lost. Under Alexander the Great, the Greeks had conquered a bigger area than Nebuchadnezzar. Just look at that. It's huge from Greece right the way across to India, down into Egypt. That's what the Jews in Israel were dealing with in the second century BC. These Greeks had destroyed the Persian Empire that itself had destroyed Babylon. They had the greatest cities of Athens, Ephesus, and many other wonders of the ancient world. They had captured Egypt. They had the learning of Plato and Aristotle, and they had more gods than you can shake a stick at. And the Greeks had power. Power to extort the wealth of Israel, power to make the life of ordinary Jews miserable. And they thought they had the power to wipe out the faith, faith of a people in a God who could not be seen and didn't protect his people from invaders like Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander and the Greeks who ruled after them. They thought they were so much better than Israel with their God. But the Jews knew, because God's prophets had told them time and again, that they were suffering not because their God could not protect them, but because he would not protect them 
unless they repented and trusted him and him alone. If they did what Nebuchadnezzar was told in the dream that he should do, what all of us should do. And what does Daniel 4 say the Jews were to think of their new rulers? As madmen. Worthy of being ridiculed, as deranged, as people whose vanity and self-deception was so extreme that it sent them insane and that they became like animals. So mad they would eat grass and come to look like animals. That's how the Jews of the 2nd century BC were invited to think of their foreign oppressors. So it makes sense to read this as satire. You may think that it doesn't fit well with our modern sensitivities. We don't laugh at madness or accuse our enemies of having mental illness. Except we do. Think of all the psychoanalyzing that was done of Donald Trump some by ordinary citizens and some by qualified psychologists. He was accused of being a sociopath, neurotic, deranged, and a narcissist. The word deluded is often used of him. He called the truth fake news. And many have said that President Putin is mad or deluded. He will not face the facts that he is weakening Russia politically, militarily, and economically. He will not allow his failings to be told to his people. As the great protector of the Slavs, he is causing the deaths of Ukrainian and Russian Slavs. He's called deluded. His vanity is uh, spoken of openly. People who are suffering or are oppressed can accuse their oppressors of mental health problems. A colleague of our former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was, had called him a sociopath, uh, sorry, a psychopath. Bob Catter has been accused, I think kindly, of having a rue loose in the top paddock. And think of what he has been said over the years of Pauline Hanson, Barnaby Joyce, Clive Palmer, and many others. People take comfort from thinking that there is something wrong with their enemies. And while I think that is what's going on here, I don't think that it's the main point. Yes, we see that what we, what we all know, that every human empire is only temporary. There have been at least seven dynasties in China, all have ended. Egypt, Rome, and the British Empire have all fallen. The thousand-year Reich barely lasted 10 years. Some say the American century is ending, and some even think China is on the wane. The immediate message is that God is able to humble the proud. And that is good news. But more than that, we see that he, how he wants us to live, to do good, to use whatever powers we have for good, just as Zoe prayed. And that is good news for us. People for generations have been ground down by the mediocrity and self-interest of politicians. But Paul reminds us that vengeance is the Lord's. And we read in the book of James that God will oppose us if we think we are better than we are. So a humble realisation of what we are and what we can do is what we're being called to in this passage. 
we should remember what we saw in the first week, that Daniel outlasted mighty Babylon. Its greatness did not last, but God's provision for those who trust him will last into eternity. We also see what happens when someone as deluded as Nebuchadnezzar sees something of the glory of God. So there is real hope in this story. When Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes to heaven, his sanity was restored. His life of self-congratulation and vanity, in this story at least, gave way to praise and honouring God. There is truth and hope in these words. Nebuchadnezzar is portrayed as saying this of God. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples on earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Oh, that every ruler and every rich and powerful person and every pastor knew this. With his sanity returned, Nebuchadnezzar also received honour and splendour. They're not anathema to God, but things that must be seen and enjoyed as gracious gifts from God. The words of hope for the Jews are there. Everything the King of Heaven does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he will be able to humble. I actually doubt that Nebuchadnezzar ever uttered those words. And I doubt if the Greek oppressors of the Jews ever uttered them either. But that does not matter if we know who is ultimately in control. For sooner or later, the king of heaven will bring his kingdom to earth. And if our government does not do everything that is right and just, we know that each member of the government will be judged for each thing they do and each idle word they say, as we will. And we know that one day when Jesus returns, he will bring the kingdom that is right and just. In the meantime, we may join with the Apostle Peter in our second reading and acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah our King, more powerful and more wonderful and more merciful than any human king has ever been. The call is for us to persevere and call on God to help keep us remain humble and trust him. So what does chapter 4 of the book of Daniel contribute? In a contest between the King of Heaven and human kings, even mighty kings like Nebuchadnezzar, the king of heaven wins. As we will see so wonderfully in the death and resurrection of Jesus, our king reigns. It's good to know that God will bring down every human empire built on greed and vanity. That goes for large nations, the empires we carve out for ourselves at work or socially, and even the smallest of churches. We should know our place, know the overwhelming power and goodness of God, and know that only with God are we truly safe. Uh, that's essential if we want to join in the resurrection to eternal life that we will move on to in the coming weeks.
So, with visions and dreams and all of these types of things, Daniel is a fun journey. But the destination is even better. And I'll leave it there. Let's stand and sing.